And there's a tremendous amount of anger. And what Trump says, which has always been an effective political tactic, is it's not your fault. You have no responsibility here. This is somebody else's fault. And here are all the people we can blame. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. 20 years ago, Governor Howard Dean ended his run for president. His campaign concluded with a scream, the fabled Dean scream, but not before it changed the face of modern campaigning. The Deaniacs, as his legions of young followers came to be known, proved that small-dollar internet fundraising and organizing could help vault the governor of a small state who was little known outside of New England into a powerful insurgent candidate. When Dean split from his fellow Democratic candidates and denounced the Iraq War in the fall of 2003, he became the populist hero and frontrunner in many polls for the Democratic nomination. He poured everything into winning the Iowa caucuses, only to come in third behind John Kerry and John Edwards, who would end up as the Democrats' presidential and vice-presidential nominees, respectively. The so-called Dean scream was a viral clip of Dean shouting hoarsely to thousands of his followers to rally them to keep fighting as they left Iowa and traveled to New Hampshire. The clip was used by his opponents to portray him as hot-headed and angry, It's been described as the first-ever viral political meme. Howard Dean, a physician and Vermont's longest-serving governor, would go on to be elected chairman of the Democratic National Committee in 2005, where he championed the 50-state strategy. Rather than focusing only on swing states, Dean insisted that Democrats contest every single district in the country— The strategy proved itself in 2006 when Democrats won control of the House of Representatives and the Senate. Dean also launched Democracy for America, a progressive political action committee which folded in 2022. Howard Dean has been an independent consultant focusing on health care and grassroots organizing and teaches foreign policy and public affairs at Yale, his alma mater. Governor Howard Dean, welcome back to the Vermont Conversation. Thanks for having me on again. Uh, Well, 20 years ago this month, you ended your presidential campaign. How do you reflect on that race today? Um, I wish I had been better organized and I wish I had put together a campaign operation that was better than organized. I I wish a little less that I uh, wasn't so outspoken, but actually that's what made the campaign um, so I'm I'm incredibly glad I did it. It was an unbelievable experience. There were some wonderful, wonderful people um, in in the campaign who I still keep up with. And you launched some people. Joe Trippi, your campaign manager, was, you know, a bit of an outsider at that time, trying something new, internet fundraising, things like that. And he, of course, is now you know a a big time Democratic strategist. Well, the people I'm really proud about uh, launching are um, uh, people like um, Ezra Klein. He was was working there. Uh, Joe. What Rose did Park. Ezra Klein do on your I campaign? I have no idea. You'll have to ask him, but I know he was in the campaign. Uh, Joe Rosebars, who was one of the principals of Blue State Digital, which I then took to Washington because they had no computer operation at the DNC, and then Obama hired them away from me. Um and so at Bo Willimon, who uh, eventually wrote House of Cards and had a couple of other things before that. So there were some, you know, it was a young person's campaign. 
Um, and uh, I was the voice of the 20 something generation. And they, you know, we still talk about that. There's a, an incredible, a whole bunch of people whose name you wouldn't recognize, uh, but are, are incredibly successful um, today. Uh, it was a 20 year old's campaign. They ran the campaign, basically. They told me what to do. I did what they said. I didn't have to raise any money after about February because it just came pouring over the transom. I didn't have to make any fundraising phone calls. Stephanie Shriok, uh was the was the uh, finance person. Head so of Emily's who, who list. On, yeah, who went on to head up Emily's list. So it was that way. It was a groundbreaking campaign. I was not, and I suppose I was somewhat of a groundbreaking candidate, but I was just too disorganized to to really get it together to win. So how did you, you were a guy in your 50s at that point, right? Yep. So how do you end up being the champion of the young voters? Because I have a a, a trait that did me very well in Vermont, but eventually not so well. And that is, I say what I think, and there's not much of a filter. And I got reelected all those times here because Vermonters appreciate that. Um, and But the national press didn't appreciate that. And uh, and, uh, you know, their their definition of a gaffe is when you say something in Washington that's true and nobody thinks you should have said it. Um, so I, I was just, you know, I, I called it as I saw it. And, you know, that that didn't go over well with the, with the National Press Corps, who I still have mostly contempt for. Why do you have contempt and what do you think they how do you think they covered you poorly? Uh, well, I think it was it, it wasn't so much they covered me poorly, which they did. I mean, the scream speech was an obvious one, uh, which which if you'd been in the room, actually, there were a lot of re pencil reporters in the room who never reported on it because it didn't was no, it was nothing like what the cable stations got because they cut out all the crowd noise. Uh, the, the basic I mean, there are some good national reporters. I have a lot of respect for Dan Boltz and people like that, but there are not many. I, I once heard two reporters talking in the hotel uh, fort, uh, whatever it is there, Des Moines, and uh, one was saying to the other, "Hey, I got him to say they were talking about somebody else." I mean, that's that's what they they want. What they want is clicks. They want headlines, and whether it's true or not is is irrelevant. Uh, the I think the worst thing uh, that there are of many bad things is that um, right after we took off. It was in March, and we, we knew Kerry was the big opposition, so we went down and did a huge rally on Boston Commons. And I had promised a, a, a NBC um, an interview, um, and we hadn't been able to do it and hadn't been able to do it. And I'm trying to remember who the reporter was. It was a woman who eventually wrote a book with Caddy Kay, uh, and it's quite well known. I'll, I'll, it'll come to me eventually. But anyway, she... Um, so we get behind the the stage because it's a big outdoor venue and Fox decides they can horn in on the interview. You can't stop him. It's a public place. And so, OK, that was fine. I had no problem with that. But the cameraman from Fox began smacking the other cameraman uh, with the with the camera to move them out of the way so he could get the shot he wanted. So I turned to the cameraman at Fox and I said, if you don't behave yourself, then you're never going to get another interview with me. Now, stop behaving like a 10 year old in line somewhere. And so that fine. So I did the interview um, and uh, the woman, uh, the reporter for NBC turned to Kate O'Connor, who was my body person at that time, and said, don't worry, we won't use that. Five months later, six months later, we're in Iowa in the middle of the primary and I was leading the primary. And the 
um, that uh, with the exception of Edwards, the other five candidates got together, uh, their press people every morning. OK, what's the line on Dean? What's the line on Dean? Because they had to get me out of the way. And uh, the line on Dean for a while was he's an angry man. He shouldn't be the pres president. He's an angry man. And the night that they decided to go with that, guess what NBC footage showed up on television in Iowa? It was the footage of me giving the camera, the Fox man, hell, saving the MSNBC reporter, the MSNBC uh, or the NBC reporter who had put that on, in the, who had gotten uh, hit in the first place. I mean, that, that, you know, that's despicable. And there's a lot of that that goes on in the national press. I just, there are people who are great writers there are not many people that I would consider good reporters in the national press. So you are, you know, somebody who anybody running for president today would um, want to pay a courtesy call to and and get the benefit of your wisdom. What advice do you give to modern candidates for president? I tell the truth as much as possible. And when you see an issue that you have to deal with and deal with it. Um, I'm going to do some other shows later today, and they're going to ask me about what Biden should do about immigration. And immigration is an issue that's going to kill him unless he does something about it. And he's got the perfect setup. He'll do something, and he, it needs to be fairly firm. It doesn't have to be draconian. We don't have to be Trump here. Uh, but it has to be firm. And then he has to be able to say the Republicans didn't do anything, and I did. Um, so that's number one. And number two, I think his staff is on top of the fact that this is the best economy we've seen in a long time. And Joe Biden's uh, response to is responsible for that. This is a guy who I don't know particularly well, so I don't have a big reason to puff him up. But this is a guy who has had the best uh, domestic policy record since any anybody since Lyndon Johnson. Lyndon Johnson's nobody's hero because of the Vietnam War, but he had the most extraordinary domestic policy since Roosevelt. And Biden has finished that up. I, I was hearing Michigan voters talk about whether they're going to vote for Biden or not. And union guys, any union guy who votes for Trump is an idiot. He's a damn fool. Trump is up there manipulating the hell out of all these people who are going to vote for him because they want to kick the table over and they're angry. Well, get, you're going to pay a price for that because you're going to have chaos and you're going to have an economy that falls apart. And Joe Biden because of the Inflation Reduction Act, has brought the chip industry back to the states. And he, interestingly, he's put a lot of those plants in rural places where he's not going to get voted for. So, so why do you is think a tough he, business. Why do you think he is not getting credit for that? I don't know the answer to that. I think partly because it's Trump is very good at buying the Republican noise machine is very good. I think uh, Putin is certainly spreading disinformation because he much prefer having Trump as the president because he can manipulate him so easily. Um, there's a lot of reasons. And Biden's age is, does hurt him, although why it doesn't hurt Trump, I think he's got more mental problems than Biden ever did. Do you, you mentioned Ezra Klein. He's uh, the opinion columnist and podcaster for the New York Times, and he's gotten a lot of traction for a recent uh, podcast in which he outlined why he, a fan of Biden's, believes that Biden should step aside because of his age um, what do you think about that? How do you I think his age is a political handicap, but it's not a handicap in doing what needs to get done. The fact of the matter is this is a guy who's produced more than any Democratic president since Johnson, more than Carter, who I got me into politics and I adored, 
more than Clinton, who did tremendous amount for me when I was governor and for the people of Vermont, more than Obama, who was a remarkable breakthrough uh, president with even my mother, a Republican, couldn't, you know, couldn't say any enough nice things about him. But Joe Biden's record is better. Uh, domestically is, is better. And, um, you know, he's willing to stand up to Putin. He's not will he, he got our troops out of Afghanistan. You can say that was messy, but a lot of Republican presidents got us in there based on lies. And the same is true of Iraq. So, um, I, you know, I think on both on the foreign policy side and on the um, domestic side, this is guy who I, again, I barely know him. I've spent a couple hours with him in an airport once, and that was it. Um, I think he's done a superb really superb job. And I don't think his age disqualifies him. So you said that Biden needs to do something about immigration. He does. What? I think, well, you can't do the remain in Mexico policy because that because uh, you need cooperation of the Mexican president to do that. And he has some Trumpian delusions, although I used to get along with him pretty well <laughs> when he thought I was a left wing wacko, uh, which he is. Um, so you, you've got to do things like not let people apply for asylum if once they've crossed the border and you know unless uh, you know unless you uh, unless they've done it in in a, in the proper way uh you've got you've got to absolutely do what he suggested is once the you should do actually what you should do is what the republicans agreed to before trump made them weak need and pass the bill that they compromised on and that passed the senate now the Republicans are all running away. When the president of the United States or the former president of the United States says, don't pass this bill because it'll help me help my opponent get reelected, even though it's good for the country, you know, you've got a guy who should never be president and should never have been president. So well, I think they ought to basically put what's in the Senate bill into action. The other thing he's got to do is straighten out his views on Israel because the party is very divided and the country is very divided on that. I think he's gradually getting to where he needs to be, which is to insist on a two-state solution, insist on a ceasefire. But we also have, do have a right, and Israel has a right, to make sure that the hostages are freed uh, and that the Hamas attack uh, can't be um, duplicated. I think Biden is getting there. I think he needs to put pressure on Netanyahu. I think Netanyahu has been the most destructive Israeli prime minister in the history of the state of Israel. And I think he's doing a tremendous amount of harm to Israel and to the United States-Israeli relations. And Biden is the only person that's even begun to call him on that. So we're speaking on Tuesday. It's the date of the Michigan primary. And there's a strong movement among Democrats in Michigan, which has a very large Arab-American population, to vote uncommitted not vote for Trump, uh, for Biden as an expression of their deep dissatisfaction with how Biden has handled uh, the Israel's war on Hamas. What do you think needs to happen there? I mean, we have a situation now where Netanyahu may be a major deciding factor in electing Trump. Uh I think that uh, he needs to do what he says he is going to do, insist on a two-state solution. But uh, I mean, a two-state solution for all intents and purposes is dead. Nobody- I disagree. I absolutely disagree. And I'd cut off arms sale to Israel if we have to. Do you think- I, Israel, Look, Israel has a right to exist and it should exist. There needs to be a Jewish state. Um, but the, the, the leadership uh, in Israel has been a disaster. Uh, as long as since Netanyahu has been. Look, I've met Netanyahu uh, and I can assure you that he is just Trump with brains. 
All he cares about is Netanyahu, and he doesn't give a damn about anything else or anybody else. And I think that includes the state of Israel. But nobody so, is seriously talking about advancing a two-state solution. In I think they are. I think Biden himself is talking about advancing a two-state solution, and I think that's extremely important. Do you think that cutting off uh, aid to Israel is politically possible for Biden to do? Because well, so far, so far, the Republicans have been a big assist in that by refusing to aid uh, Ukraine. True, but. We're our negotiating position now is trying to scold Israel for its, you know, human rights excesses and abuses, and yet saying we you have an open spigot of arms. Uh, well, I, I, my sense is that that's beginning to change, and that the private messaging is is you got to straighten up and fly right. How concerned are you that the Middle East situation could cost? Biden the election? I don't think it will. Um, and the reason for that is, first of all, I am not upset by the boycott of of, uh, of the primary vote in Michigan. I think people have a right to make, that's what the democracy is about, is allowing people to express their views at the ballot box, which is far better than what they seem to be doing in the Middle East. Um, so I have no problem with that. I see that Biden, I, I believe that Biden will drift towards a more equitable position than the one the United States has always taken. Um, I, I also truly think that most Arab Americans who uh, are incredibly, as they should be, sympathetic with the plight of particularly Palestinian women and children who are being bombed into, uh, you know, into death uh, by the Israelis, by Netanyahu, I, I also think that compared to Trump, um, if you have to vote for this, choose between Biden and Trump, Trump, who moved the capital to Jerusalem, Trump, who clearly doesn't care uh, about what happens. Um, you know, I think there are going to be a whole lot more Palestinians killed in the long run if Donald Trump is president uh, than there is as Biden is president. I think we can we can and I think we are beginning to exercise some restraint. Uh, on Israel. And I think we have to do that. Look, I, let's remember that is, this started because Hamas murdered a thousand Israeli civilians and raped uh, and savaged uh, the prisoners uh, that they have and took hostages. Let's remember that. Uh, so does one atrocity uh, uh, make another one okay? No, it doesn't. Uh, but this is a very complicated situation. And I think and, and Biden is incredibly experienced in foreign policy. He has a really good foreign policy team around him. I think um, uh, Anthony Blinken is one of the best secretaries of state we've had. Um, and so I think we have to give this time. And I think Biden is doing the right thing by putting enormous pressure on Netanyahu to stop uh, what he's doing. What indication do we have that that pressure is doing anything, is restraining him? I mean, we've got 30,000... Gazan's dead at this point. Right. And hopefully Netanyahu will begin to understand that he's not going to be in office very long if he continues this and that there will be a state two-state solution. I think it was very positive that the Palestinian, uh, the PLA leadership resigned because the truth is, one of the truths is that the only reason Hamas is where they are is because they won a democratic election 20 years ago and then never permitted another one. And the PLA has, frankly, 
been run by somebody who's 80 years old and doesn't know where he is. And I think it, in order to have a Palestinian government, it has to be functioned functioning. And the Palestinian government in the West Bank has not been functioning, not just because the settlers are butchering uh, Palestinians uh, and pushing them off their land, which they are, uh, but also because the Palestinian Liberation Organization has been incompetent. That the resignation uh, the other day of, of all the leading Palestinian officials, all of whom are in the in the gerent or in their gerontocracy, I think is a very positive event. And I don't think it would have happened without Biden's pressure. Well, let's pivot back here to the U.S. Nikki Haley is the last candidate standing against Trump uh, for among the Republicans, but she is getting soundly thumped, losing to Trump in her home state of South Carolina by 20 points. So as a former insurgent candidate yourself, why keep running when the odds are so bleak? I I have no insight into what Nikki Haley's plans are and why she's doing it, but I, I'd make a couple of observations. First of all, she has plenty of money because there's plenty of people who realize in the Republican side who realize what a disaster Donald Trump presidency is going to be for the whole country, not just for uh, Democrats or liberals. Um, secondly, um, there is some chance, and it's not small, that Trump, who has his own health issues of quite substance, his age is not much younger than Biden, and his Hillary Clinton once told me that she thought Biden ought to challenge Trump to a push-up contest, and I think she's exactly right, because Trump uh, is a, one of the most, un, at least in, if it was a cheeseburger eating contest, that might not go so well for <laughs> Biden, but the fact is that Biden actually keeps himself physically, physically fit, which Trump certainly doesn't. So I'd like to see that push-up contest between Biden and Trump. Um, uh, but the, tr the, the, the truth is um, that uh, he could have a medical event, Trump. I think it's more likely for Trump to have a major medical event than it is for Biden. Uh, and secondly, what if he does get convicted of a, of a felony uh, of which, you know, he's being tried for, I think, 91 felonious counts. Um, and he's already been has a criminal conviction. Engeron, Judge Engeron made that decision. It's being appealed and so forth and so on. So it's pretty likely that Trump is going to be a, a criminal uh, when he's on the ballot. Uh, it's not impossible that you would get to the Republican convention and Trump would have uh, enough baggage so that there would be an awful lot of people who realized he couldn't win. So that's why I'm guessing Nikki has, is staying in. She's got plenty of money for now. Um, and somebody's going to have to be willing to step in. Uh, and she does have some people who like her in the Republican Party, including a bunch of the Trumpists who are blindly loyal to Trump, but do like Nikki Haley. Now, Nikki Haley's vote, you know, views on women's rights are, I think, are appalling. Um, so and I don't think she'd beat Biden. But, you know, there are those who think she could and polls show she could if the election were held tomorrow. Talk about the implosion of Ron DeSantis. A year ago, if we were having this conversation, he would be probably the focus of who we talked about. He had the most money. He was the heir apparent to, you know, to succeed Trump. He doesn't even make it to New Hampshire. I tell you what his problem is. He, you know, he's a right wing authoritarian. That doesn't seem to be a problem in Republican politics these days. His big problem is he's not very nice. And people kind of have to like you a little bit in this business. And he is one of the most unlikable people I ever saw. 
for president. I was horrified by him because of his views of banning books and kicking people out of the elementary school for wanting to read black authors and all this kind of stuff. I mean, this is not an American thing to do. But he sneers. He's got an ugly discussion, uh, an ugly uh, disposition. Uh, he's just a, not a nice guy. And he's got the sense of humor of a rock uh, that, you know, you got to have a little pizzazz and be a little fun if you're going to run. Is there a candidate who surprised you uh, who did not make it? I won't even say across the finish line. Some didn't even make it across the starting line. On the not in this side. Republican Party. Nothing surprises me. They have taken leave of their senses. They truly are an authoritarian party. I don't know if you saw the uh, CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Committee convention, where some guy got up and said, ha ha, I'm just here to announce that democracy is over. And he got a lot of applause. I can't imagine Barry Goldwater thinking that was a good idea. Um, so the conservatives have lost their mind. They're really not conservatives at all anymore. They're just lunatics. Well, talk about that in Vermont. You have we have the situation of Governor Scott, very popular incumbent governor, who is essentially on an island politically. Um, his state party are all for Trump and disagree and disavow many of the policies that Governor Scott has advanced. Is there any future for the Republican Party in Vermont? Never want to say no, because, you know, what's going on? I never thought there was a future for Trumpism in the United States of America. And he served four years as president. So uh, I, I, but I don't think there's I, here's the one thing about Vermont. It's not so much about Republican versus Democrat. It's about decency uh, and respect for your neighbor versus authoritarianism and hate. I mean, there basically the, the the platform of the Republican Party can be summed up in two words, hate and anger. And I, Vermonters aren't like that for the most part. Uh, and, you know, even the people who did vote for Trump, which was about 30 percent of Vermont, which I'm proud to say is the lowest of any state. We were at 30.1 percent. Hawaii was at 30.4 percent, although we were nosed out by the District of Columbia. Four percent of the voters in Columbia voted for Trump <laughs> in the District of Columbia. But that brand of politics, even the people who voted for Trump, I mean, there's always a few crazies, but most of them are not uh, the classic Trumpists who hate everybody. They're, you know, they're good old boys that I used to that used to vote for me um, because I respected them and I shook their hand and I looked them in the eye and we could disagree, but we respected each other. Um, so I don't think there's a future for Donald Trump in Vermont. And I do think there's a future of the Republican Party. Uh, for it, but it won't look anything like the Republican. It'll be the Phil Scott uh, Republican Party. It certainly isn't going to be the Donald Trump. Rep Donald Trump is just mean. And there are not a lot of mean people in this state. Governor Dean, you served as chairman of the Democratic National Committee for four years and implemented the 50 straight 50 state strategy, um, which involved being competitive in all 50 states. Today, about 60% of state legislatures are Republican-controlled, as in both chambers, and Republicans control the legislature and the governorship in nearly half the states. Um, you compare this to 1978, 31 states, more than half, were controlled by Democrats. Um, today, uh, almost that same amount are controlled by Republicans. 
What's happened in the states to Democrats? A number of things. First of all, the Democrat, the, the, the 50 state strategy disappeared when Obama became president. Obama made the, and he sort of more or less admitted this, he made an enormous political mistake. He thought he was going to bypass the DNC when he became president. And the president basically controls the DNC when you have an incumbent Democratic president, as they should. But he set up something called Organizing for America, OFA. And the DNC fell apart. I think they had three chairmen in three years, and three of them had to be let go. And it was a, just a disastrous mess. So there was no support for the state parties uh, after after we got done. I mean, after Obama took over the the presidency, and that was you know you can't. It, we need to be president in places like Iowa and Nebraska, which are pretty conservative. Otherwise, you know, Rush Limbaugh. God don't rest his soul is is uh, you know giving you the democratic message or their version of it or Alex whatever the guy's name is the gun nut conspiracy guy yeah, you know so you you've got to be in these states and you can win in these states this is about I mean this is sort of what I said about DeSantis people get sick and tired of having cranky people come to their door and spewing hate about women and black people and homosexuals and all this other stuff. You know, that even if you if conservative on those issues, you kind of would like to have a representative that was a decent human being and cared really what your tax rate was and what your job opportunities were. And we don't show up in those states and we need to show up and we still haven't shown up in those states. And it's a big problem because the Washington, I always say Washington is middle school on steroids. Um, they're smart. They work hard. And it's all, pss, 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 you know, who's that next to who? And it's all about them all the time. You know, the fact of the matter is people all over the country pay the salaries of people in Washington. And, you know, we owe them something. And it's more than just the gossip. And the I hate to say this, but the news media contributes to this because that's what they report on. I mean, give me, so give there's me an a example lot of mistakes of... the Democratic Party has made over the last few years that we just haven't been there and we need to be there. We need there's a group called Run for Something, which is, is all young people, and they recruit the kind of people I just talked about to run for school boards and county commissioner and all over the country. And that's what needs to be done. So give me an example of a state that is now considered solidly red where you had success as uh, you know, with your 50 state strategy. Uh, Alaska is one. Uh, I went to Alaska because I visited all 50 states and uh, every territory when I was chair. And I went to Alaska. And, you know, Alaska is a pretty Republican state. And I discovered that there's a small Democratic Party funded by labor who really knew what they were doing and had a, a great facility for using computerized voting analysis, which at that time was unheard of. Nobody had done that except for my campaign, which we were able to then start doing that. We gave, we put, uh, I think it was $60,000 and one staffer in every state in the country, they could do what they want with it and help them build a database. And Alaska, uh, what Alaska did, first of all, they do have a democratic representative now, which is wonderful. Those, uh, the, the first um, native Alaskan that's ever served. Um, but more importantly, at the time, there was a young guy who also got his start in my campaign at age 14. Uh, he showed up, much to the chagrin of people who had no idea where they were going to house him because campaign houses are notorious and you don't want to put a 14-year-old in one of those. Um, and But he uh, he went on to run for the Alaska legislature. The Democrats never took over, but they made common cause with moderate Republicans and 
and took the power away from the conservative right wing, which was always running Alaska in the past. So he put together a coalition that essentially functioned as Democrats for Alaska. So, yes, there's a lot of places we can do well in. But if we don't try, you can't do well. Why do you think Republicans have been successful in these places? I mean, did Democrats just walk away from? No, uh, it's partly to do with our nature. Um, Clausewitz said that politics is war by another means. The Republicans understand that. They're ruthless. They govern from the top down. They're incredibly well organized. Democrats, they can't govern as a result because this is a democracy, which is no doubt why they want to get rid of the democracy. Democrats are intellectuals. Uh, we, we think that the argument is going to win the day. We, we don't pack the Supreme Court. We don't have corrupt justices on the Supreme Court. We don't have a federalist society that puts corrupt justices on the Supreme Court. And, and we don't we're not we play nice because we believe in democracy, which the Republicans basically don't unless they can get the votes from it. So our problem is we're pretty good at governing when we get there. And most of the, there really have most of the deficits in this country have been put in by Republican presidents, not by Democrats. And most of the advances in this country have been take have been made since Roosevelt by by Democrats, not Republicans. But we are lousy at winning elections. Because we, we, we want to play nice, nice, and we don't want to do anything that's going to offend anybody. Um, and I, I I don't want to be as offensive as the Republicans are, but I think we got to be a lot tougher and a lot better organized. So, as you mentioned, Donald Trump, 91 felony charges, two impeachments. Why is this race close? Trump is... You know, I think is nuts. I think he has a problem, but he is a he is sort of a bit of an idiot savant. He is incredibly good at grievance politics. Um, and what he does is essentially tell all the people who are all the white men in this country who are upset about women being able to take their jobs now, who live in rural areas. And if they, this is the first time in my lifetime where if you're 50 years old, a 50 year old white guy living in rural America, and you lose your job, you're not going to get another one. Uh, you don't know how to use the internet. You don't have a college education. Your kids are moving away because they don't want to live in that kind of a, a, an environment where everybody has to conform. Uh, the, the world is a big place. And there's a tremendous amount of anger. And what Trump says, which has always been an effective political tactic, is it's not your fault. You have no responsibility here. This is somebody else's fault. And here are all the people we can blame. We can game, blame gay people. We can blame women. Um, we can blame uh, black people. We can blame, you know, anybody. We can blame immigrants. Uh, and but it's not you. And I'm here to put you back in the saddle. This is total nonsense. It's a fiction. So um, I'm curious, you know, people uh, may forget. I don't. You had some, you know, in, in the wake of civil unions, you had some really close races. You were almost you know, you were the incumbent, but, you know, it was a couple of points with you and Ruth Dwyer and these maybe names from the past for a lot of people, but I remember the races. So you know what it's like to fight in rural areas, to fight against a conservative backlash. Um, what was your secret to surviving those? Tell the races? truth. Go out there. Don't be ashamed. We, we did something that was turned out to be groundbreaking. It was not the only thing we did groundbreaking. I was on a show the other day at one of the CCTVs, and we were talking about something we did with Ken Libertoff, 
um, which was uh, the first mental health care parity bill, which we forced insurance companies to cover mental health the same way they covered other things. We got rid of the insurance companies that were were screwing people like Golden Rule and kicked them out. And we did a lot of stuff like that, that, you know, you, you've got to stand up for what you believe in. And, you know, I was I had no particular reason to be involved in the gay rights stuff. But when the court decided that what we were doing was illegal because it was a rights matter, the, the explanation was perfectly clear. If you're allowed to get married and you get married, you have a whole lot of financial rights, like about 1700s of them, uh, of them, inheritance rights and other things that you can't get if you're not married. So if, my re reasoning was if you choose not to get married, that's on you. But if you're not allowed to get married, that's a civil rights issue. And so it was pretty obvious to me what had to be done. Um, and so, yes, we, I, I actually, on the advice of the state police, wore a bulletproof vest to most of my public events that, that summer when I was, I was campaigning. I ran for another term because the last thing I was going to do was back out after we'd done something. I thought that the public needed to have a referendum on this, and I was the referendum. And I don't regret that for a second, not for a second. And you know what? Two years later, Jim Douglas ran against Doug Racine while I was running for president, and Douglas won by a small amount. Guess what issue never came up once during all the debates? Civil unions. Because the truth of the matter is there are a lot of people who may not like gay people, but they got gay people in their family, and they wondered how to deal with that. And finally, along comes somebody who says, wait a minute, just treat your kid the way you treat other everybody else's kid. And everything will be better. And it was better. And it never came up. Two years it took us to get get by all the upset and the traditional uh, about traditional marriage. And I don't think anybody's marriage has been harmed in the last 20 years since we did this. Hmm. Well, let's talk about um, abortion now. And we are at this remarkable moment in the aftermath of the Alabama Supreme Court ruling where it is ruled that uh, a fetus is a person. So that essentially these these cryobanks of frozen embryos that IVF patients have are essentially daycare centers. Um, and this is the logical outcome of a sure. national movement for fetal this is what the right this is, The right wing basically hates the idea that women are equal to men. And so this is one right you can take away from women and have them less equal. And that's what they're doing. That's what this is about. Talk about the politics of this, as we're seeing now, even in conservative states, even in Republican states like Ohio, they're passing constitutional amendments to protect reproductive rights. That's right. And all these men, these secretaries of state and these Supreme Court people in Alabama and all this stuff that would like to go back to the old days where women are in the kitchen barefoot and pregnant, as they used to say, not anymore. It's too late. You let us let them out. And we ain't going back in. And I'm one of those people that, you know, believes that people are entitled to equality and we don't always get the equality we want. And there's lots of problems and we have work to do. Uh, but this is a core right. Will women control their own bodies and control their own lives? Or are they simply respectable as, as the uh, so-called Christians on the evangelical right believe? Well, I don't think they are second-class citizens, and I don't think they are simply receptacles. I think they're human beings that deserve exactly the same rights as privileges as everybody else, including men. And that's what this fight is about. And the women know it. And that's and e there are even so there are a lot of people who don't think the government should be d telling you what to do. 
and they're voting for this kind of stuff too. They may be against, there are even some people who are against abortion that are voting uh, for these constitutional amendments because they basically think it's not the government's business and it's certainly not the business of a bunch of sick old men who got zillions of dollars from Leonard Leo on the, uh, to get on the Supreme Court. Do you think that abortion could be the issue that turns the election? It depends how Joe plays the other issues. Uh, this this is yeah, it could be, but we got to get by immigration first, uh, and then we've got to get some kind of a solution. You know, when I, one of the things I got pilloried for for speaking my mind in the election where you started this conversation out was I said there needs to be an even-handed approach to the Palestinian between the Palestinians and the Israelis, and I got totally screwed. Are you familiar with a group called J Street? Yes, they're the well, progressive alternative to APEC. Right. J Street was started by a guy in my campaign. And it was started because we talked about even-handedness and I got the hell kicked out of me by the professional Jewish community. Um, and by that, I mean the big money bags who were really Republicans. Uh, and the fact of the matter is we do need an even-handed policy. People are human beings and we've got to have an even-handed policy. Well, I get pilloried for saying that that's what Biden needs to do. This country needs an even-handed policy. What Hamas did was a horror show. And we never need to countenance. They have no right to do that. Anybody who argues that this is just a reasonable reaction to oppression, I mean, you know, they tortured people. Uh, but what's going on in Gaza now is also a horror show. And nobody has the right to do that and murder 30,000 uh, individuals or civilians and mostly women and children. So this is a this is a there's no right here on either side. Both sides need to be pushed. We need to be even-handed. We need to be tough on Hamas, but we need to be tough on Netanyahu as well. And, you know, you just, I don't, I mean, the regrets I have about my presidential campaign to sort of bring this back to where we started are not that I had a bad message, because there's nothing I said that I don't believe and that I think many in many cases has been done. My regrets were that I was disorganized and I didn't present it well enough and I didn't know enough uh, about how to present it, and I didn't have a lot of help at the senior level of the campaign. Why did you run? What <laughs> what signaled to you? I mean, you were the longest serving Vermont governor. You served for twelve years. Um, how did you know it was time to do something else? Uh, well, I figured civil unions really that was enough. I mean, I figured I figured the voters were tired of me. I mean, we we did insurance reform, we did health care for everybody, we did success by six. We did, uh, you know, same-sex marriage. We really broke a lot of glass. And when you do that, eventually people get exhausted. So I figured it was time to move on. Was it your close elections that you just uh, kind of made you think you weren't you weren't sure how many of these? I didn't actually have through? any close elections. Even the last one, the only thing that was close about it was I, I got over fifty percent by one hundred and twenty-three votes because we had a progressive in the race who peeled ten percent away. But I beat the daylights out of Ruth twice. Uh, but in Vermont, if you get if you unless you get 50 percent plus one, the legislature elects. And as a result of the civil unions, we lost the legislature that, uh, you know, the Republicans took over the legislature. But I'll give you an example about why this is a great state. So my last term, the Republicans controlled the legislature. And that, that was because we lost a lot ton of seats in civil for civil because of civil unions and people were upset. So Walt Freed, who was a business guy from um, uh, Dorset, was the speaker, very conservative, decent human being. And 
Bush decided to do something crazy with taxes, probably cut the hell out of taxes for rich people. And that would have, at that time, we were coupled to this federal system. That is, whatever you paid uh, for federal taxes, you paid a certain percent of that to Vermont, which meant that rich people in Vermont, not that there are a whole lot of them, were going to get a huge tax cut because of Bush. And it was going to punch a huge hole in the budget. So I went to Walter Fried and I said, look, Walter, um, you can have a field day with me if I say we're going to raise taxes um, on rich people. But we are just so they pay the same amount they were paying before Bush, because we're coupled to the federal system and Bush cut taxes for the wealthiest people. Walter just looked at me and he said, you know, I have a responsibility to the people of the state of Vermont to make sure the budget is balanced. And I agree with you and I'm going to stand up for you. That is, uh, nobody would say that in Washington. Because Walter Freed believed that we had to do something about the budget and he wasn't going to play games with cutting poor people off, you know, services or, you know, taking away education funds. He just thought we would do the, everybody, he, it was the fair thing to do to make everybody equal. And if it meant raising taxes on rich people for a conservative Republican, he was going to do it. That was an amazing. You, there are very few states I can imagine that that would have happened. It was bipartisan. And, you know, that's the great thing about this state. This state is the most exceptional state in the country. And I don't say that just because I'm a Vermonter and I like the syrup and the skiing. It's an extraordinary place. There's just no place that functions like this. Uh, where thought for the most part, yeah, there's plenty of verbiage and screaming and yelling. But for the most part, we do what we have to do. And we we and sometimes we have to make painful decisions and we make them. How do you think politics has changed over the 30 odd years that you've been in public life and running for office? Well, national politics is atrocious. I mean, it's it's self-centered. It's uh, it's the country comes second. Uh, you know, it's a perfect example. The Republicans want immigration reform until Biden agrees to it. And then Trump tells them not to do it and they throw it out the window. And we're, there's not a shred of principle there. Um, so nationally, the politics is awful. I don't see there's that much difference in Vermont. I think Vermont has moved a little bit left. I don't think it's as moved as much left as everybody says it has. It looks like it's moved more left because the country's moved so far to the right. I mean, the, if you had told me that a a a, a laboratory created fetus was going to be a, 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 the death of a laboratory created fetus that was going to lead to life in prison for women or the doctors were going to be persecuted by texas if you'd told me that 20 years ago i you know i was the head of the national governors association those people weren't crazy today i wouldn't go to any of their meetings because they're so crazy now some of them are not i like asa hutchinson he's much more conservative than he ever than I would ever, but he's a decent guy. And, you know, and of course he got 1% in the Republican primaries because he's a decent guy and that decent guys don't get anywhere in the Republican party these days, unless you're from Vermont or I was a big fan of Charlie Baker's in Massachusetts. Um, I mean, there still are decent Republicans, uh, but they're just not in power. So as you look out on the landscape of the, the kind of the perils that lay before us and with the very real prospect of, you know, an authoritarian president uh, in, in Trump, what concerns you most right now that you think we're, we're not paying enough attention to? I think, that, I think what Trump's legacy will be is the same as Orban's legacy in Hungary or the PIS legacy in Poland. 
It'll be very hard to reverse. The damage will be enormous. The, the damage is to higher education. The damage will be to the economy will be huge. Uh, Trump talks all about these people who are aggrieved. They're going to be the first ones that get screwed if he wins because all he cares about is rich people in his own balance sheet. Um, so I think the country is in deep, deep, serious trouble. Uh, and I think that'll be essentially what what people have called the American century, which has really started 100 years ago with our entry into World War One. It'll be the end of America as a major as the major world power. Uh, and it'll cost us enormously. We won't be able to control the monetary systems in the in the world. We won't be able to uh, ask that countries have some modicum of reasonable financial responsibility in exchange for foreign aid. There'll be plenty of other things we won't be able to do, like send troops to Iraq while we're lying to the American people about about why we're sending them. Um, but I don't, you know, if you have to pick a country that should be the most powerful in the country in the world, it should be the United States. Uh, and that will not be the case anymore. It might be Putin. It might be China. Uh, neither one of those is a very appetizing prospect considering their views on human rights. We may not be perfect about human rights, David, but we do the best job of, of any of the major countries and the major powers. A lot of people, when they're listening to the news these days, there's no good news. I'm wondering where what gives you hope in this moment? There is plenty of good news, but the news, this is one of the reasons I don't like the news media. Bad news startles and makes people mad and gets clicks. Um, there, some of the networks have uh, a, a feature at the end of their evening news broadcast, which I love. And it's sort of good news. It's, uh, you know, kids who get together and help their teacher who got sick or they, you know, somebody invented a great, uh, you know, neighbor to neighbor program where somebody, you know, didn't have any insurance and helped them out. Those kind of things happen all the day, every day in America. So there's plenty of good news. The problem is the political class. I mean, I'm all for term limits. Uh, I really believe that we ought to term limit everybody. Um, uh, I never thought I'd say that. That was a conservative position. But these guys have shown that they, I mean, Charlie Grassley, for God's sakes. I mean, you he's know. He's in his 90s. Yeah. And he's I running mean, for re-election. He's just taking space, taking up space. You know, Mitt Romney uh, just had a biography written about him. And one of the quotes in the biography, I know Mitt Romney, I think he's a decent guy. I certainly don't agree with a lot of his politics and have some disagreements with some of the things he's not done. Uh, but he's a decent human being. And he was a decent governor. He, in fact, he was the actually person, believe it or not, who invented Obamacare. Uh, the same people who did mass care eventually then went to work for Obama. And Obamacare is not finished, but uh, not perfect. But there are a lot more people that have health insurance because of it. So Romney says, and this is quoted, that in the Senate, 80 percent of 80 senators are just there to buff their resume and have an identity and they don't do any work. And all the work is done by 20, 20 senators. I think that's exactly right. That's a major problem. We need term limits. I do. And non with no disrespect to Pat Leahy, was the fifth biggest industry in Vermont for the entire time I was governor, who's been really a great senator. Those are few and far between. And most of the people that stay there uh, shouldn't be there because they're not doing any work. All right. Well, on that note, uh, Governor Howard Dean, I want to thank you for joining us again on the Vermont Conversation. My pleasure. Thank you. Howard Dean was Vermont's longest serving governor. He ran for president in 2004. That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening.